Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Welcome to Worst Year Ever, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Worst Year Ever. My name's Katie Stoll. Hi, Katie Stoll. Welcome back. Hey. To Worst Year Ever. I'm Cody. Hi. Hi. Hello, Robert Evans. I am podcast co-host. Indeed. And I've decided to experiment with disordering the words that I use. It's poetic, Rave. Yeah. Um, Like you think. Uh, today we have a very interesting mm-hmm. interview with the former congresswoman from California's 25th district, Katie Hill. Uh, we were really excited to talk to Katie today. Um, just a heads up, we did not address uh, what happened to her when she resigned. Uh, I mean, we acknowledge well, it. Yeah, we allude like, to it. Let's just be straight up. So, like, she had she had a relationship with a staffer uh, that was inappropriate, and she also had a spouse that she was divorcing who put out a bunch of photos of her. Um, that is, and that's like uh, some of this is still like ongoing court stuff. It's a very messy story. It's also been exhaustively covered by like yeah. a billion different journalists and and places. So you can find. Multiple long interviews with Katie. You can find uh, journalists who went into the story talking with other people. Like, there's tons of that stuff, and uh, it's 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 there's plenty out there. That's yeah. not what we're talking about today right. because she has this experience that we find valuable. Yeah, um, that we're going to transmit to you. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. So here that is. Woo! Ta-da! Well, today we are very grateful to be joined by Katie Hill, the former congresswoman from California's 25th district. Hi, Katie. How's it going? Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're we're very grateful uh, for you to, to take the time out of your schedule to chat with us. Um, my, my very busy schedule of sitting in my apartment. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I think we can all relate to that yeah. right now. Yeah, we're all kind of on the same yeah. schedule these days. <laughs> um, Except for those of us who are worried about how to get through the hordes of sick people to get to their yachts. Uh, that's like true. That's true. Just dropped. <laughs> Yeah, solidarity to those people and their struggles that are very, yeah. very real. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Katie, there were you know you wound up resigning very controversially after details of your personal life were, shall we say, um, um, weaponized. People can read any number of articles if they want to form any number of opinions out there. There's a quite quite a lot that's been written. That's not what we're going to be talking about today. We might return right. to that at a later interview. Um, today we have uh, some different topics we'd like to get into because you have this experience of not just sort of of running for office in a more conservative uh, district, but as someone who ha- holds a lot of progressive uh, political stances, mm-hmm. um, as someone who had to work uh, on Capitol Hill, um, and as someone who is still kind of in that world now, but in a different uh, context. So yeah, all yeah. of that stuff. Um, yeah. Those aren't experiences I have. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that um, anyone else can like hold that particular slot in <laughs> in politics that I have at this very moment. So <laughs> yeah, a very unique perspective. Um, yeah. Today, I, I would love to start by talking about the recent runoff election to fill your old seat. Uh, you know, California 25 has been a re- Republican stronghold since the 90s, and your win in 2017 was seen as a very big victory and upset, uh, and which is why many people were disappointed when Mike Garcia, uh, former Navy pilot and defense executive at Raytheon, if I'm not mistaken. Our sponsor, sponsor of the pod. Of the sponsor wow. of the pod, Raytheon. Um, not really, yeah. Katie. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, we... we Love Raytheon here. One day. Yeah. We're, hope, we're hoping. Big we fan. Plug them, we plug them for free the until they start paying us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that um, missile made out of knives, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, could you could you tell us a little bit about Mike and, and walk us through what happened? Oh, okay. So um, Mike was actually the first and pretty, I guess pretty much the only major opponent that I had um, going into, uh, you know, for my reelection. And, um, you know, there was... There was never really, you know, we weren't having debates or anything like that. It was, I wasn't even at that point really engaging with him or his campaign. Um, we saw each other a few times at different events, but that was it. But once I resigned, Steve Knight jumped back in after I resigned. Right. Um, and so it, it became a race really between Christy Smith and Shank Ugar. And like those of us who were paying attention to the race, who knew the district in particular, knew that it was never a race between Christy and Shank on our side on the Dem side. And, um, but on the other side, it was a race between Steve Knight and Mike Garcia. And so we, you know, we knew that t- two people were going to move forward, one Dem and one Republican. And um, the, I think a lot of folks were hoping, uh, a lot of folks on our side were hoping that it would be Steve Knight because we've already beaten him before. Mm-hmm. We can beat him again, et cetera, et cetera. But Mike has no record. He's got no, nothing that could be used against him. Whereas Christie had been elected as a, an assemblywoman for California at the same time that I got elected to Congress. And so I she see. did have a record and some pretty tough votes for, you know, especially for, for assembly um, members in, you know, in California. AB5, I think in particular, was one that was um, being used against her a lot. So, you know, th- I think there's an, a number of different things that we could get into. But Mike Garcia is uh, the, the probably the most important thing is that he is all in on Trump. Mm-hmm. That's the thing yeah. that people need to know is like 100% in. 
And um, the district is a, is a fascinating one when you're looking at like how this can play out in districts like my former one across the country, because, you know, it, it's in a presidential year, the, the electorate is more democratic. But if we're looking mm-hmm. at, uh, you know, I know that we're the ones who are advocating for all mail ballots and, and or, or at least for everyone to have the option of voting by mail. But if in California, it's an all mail only election in November, I, I definitely worry about this district and um, others, because um, so many of the people that we rely on, especially in presidential years, well, all, ever for, to get Democrats elected, they, they've, many of them have never voted by mail. They just, they're, mm-hmm. they come out every four years, only on election years, and they go to the same polling places many times. And when, when those polling places have been switched up, it, it, it causes all kinds of problems. And um, so anyway, I, I guess that's my rambling answer to, to start before you ask other questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting cuz mail in mail in ballots yeah, I I think that everybody here agrees uh that people need to have that as an option, mm-hmm, but it is mm-hmm. tricky and it's interesting the way it gets framed as Democrats looking for a way to cheat oh, at the polls so when actually if you think about it <laughs> it stands to hurt us in many ways in in Oh, districts. yeah. No, people I I don't I I think that, you know, I actually posted about this today on on Twitter, just like, why is he going this route? He knows that the last I'm talking about Trump, the last person that was elected, the last Republican that was elected from a a state, a seat that had been held previously by Democrat was because of an all male election, you know? Mm -hmm. So and I honestly think that and again, I think it was the right call. I think that that's how it needed to happen. But because of covid and the fact that the the Democrats weren't able to have a field operation in the way that right. they normally were able to. And the lack of in-person voting when, you know, that's how large communities are, um, are you know, conditioned to vote uh, was was the biggest barrier because field is, um, you know, and, and that's not at all to take away from, you know, the, the disengagement or the, um, the lack of enthusiasm that people on, on our side would have had because of me losing the seat or, I mean, me resigning and, um, the scandal, sure. all all kinds of stuff played into it. There's a lot it, of but, different factors uh, yeah. that contributed to Absolutely. this. But, but you're right. I mean, I I uh, campaigned for you myself a bunch in Thank 2017. You. But I I know uh, it makes a big difference being able mm-hmm. to interact and talk to people and answer their questions. And and I got into a lot of fascinating conversations with people. And, mm-hmm. and again, your your district is pretty conservative, or. Yep. You know, or moderate, you know, even the, the Democrats that are there are a bit more moderate. Um, yeah. But mm. that's interesting because the way that this has been framed a lot in, in news articles that you read about this election, you know, they, they talk about how this is the first time a Republican has won a seat held by a Democrat since 1998. Oh, God. I know. <laughs> you know, and, and, and conservatives are using this as like, you know, this is a good sign for 2020, but it it... it does not sound from your answer to be as clear cut as that. I no, think but I, I do think it should be seen as a warning sign. Of, yeah. You know, especially in, in, I think that COVID has created a completely new environment that mm-hmm. is um, one that we really need to be able to adapt quickly to. And, um, and that, you know, if I were, if I were currently in my, let's just pretend that I hadn't resigned, that I was currently in my seat and that I hadn't had a scandal, that mm-hmm. like, I was just going along in the way that, you know, I had been. Um, I think that this would be the point at which I was most concerned about, and previously I had not been at all concerned about my reelection, um, right. because it was, 
right now, three of the cities in the district, three of the major cities in the district have like openly, you know, uh, done orders or, or um, motions to, uh, to, to protest the governor's actions or to, you know, yeah. to basically say that they should be opening. And that's Santa Clarita, Lancaster and Simi Valley. And, um, and I think those are the only ones, but I'm, you know, I haven't been paying as close attention, obviously, mm-hmm. but anyway, so, so the dynamic is, is getting much more heated. And especially when you're talking about these, these are the suburban communities, right? These are ones that are very spread out. They are not, um, and you know, it's not the same setting as you have in LA where people, or, or in any of the major cities where people kind of get it right. Um, but they're seeing these open, these open shopping centers and, and just not, not really understanding it or, or, you know, they're following the cues of the president and the other Republicans who are just going on. I don't, whatever, it doesn't matter. All I'm saying is that this is this is the time where it has been the most directly polarized and where if I were in the position in Congress, I would have, I think, the hardest time trying to navigate that because the the economic realities are are very true. And when you're talking about communities that haven't been as hard hit by, you know, the pandemic, it's a hard case to make. Yeah. Well, that brings me to to, to stuff that I also want to talk to you about uh, coronavirus. I'm sure it's really difficult for you right now to be watching all of this unfold and not be able to weigh in mm-hmm. on the legislation that's happening. And and you're right, it is really tricky. It's, you know, certain navigating the politics of it and the different needs of different communities. From your perspective, what do you think needs to be happening? What What do we need to see from Congress right now? Or, you know, and also conversely, what what have they gotten right? Yeah. Well, so having been there, this is the part that I like have a lot more sympathy towards than than I would have otherwise ever even imagined being able to have. We feel like since we got the majority in the House, we should be able to uh, to exert, you know, kind of a lot more control on what happens. Um, But I think what makes us different than Republicans is that we're not willing to hold up any kind of help because we don't get everything that we want, or even in some cases, even close to everything that we want. And, um, and that's, I think like, I don't know that that's a failing at all of character, but I think that it's, that's what it amounted to every single time when we were kind of put in those positions of, you know, do you vote for, for reopening the government? If it means some kind of border barriers, do you vote for, you know, whatever it is because of the Senate compromise that has to happen. Um, And, and I think that it's just a, it's an incredibly difficult situation. And, And I have, I've been watching this and I'm just thinking about like the progressives who I know, you know, have major issues with the bill who end up voting for it anyway, because they how do you say that you're not going to give any help when you know that you're not going to get anything better from the Senate? Um, But also, you know, this is a weird, weird time where where the members, regular rank and file members don't have much that they can do in terms of any of the legislation. You know, they've got the calls back and forth with leadership, you know, beyond hopefulness or saying like, we'd really like to see this in there or having your caucus or your committee or whatever advocate for one thing or another. There are very few people who are actually on the phone negotiating this, right? It's Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and, um, you know, a handful, Mnuchin has been a big part of it, but it's, it's not really going down to the members much. So you're given this package and you have to decide whether to vote for it with all of its flaws. And, um, and ultimately, I think that that's why you saw only, I think, what was it, only AOC that voted against it. And I understand. I fully yeah. understand why she did. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad she did because I think someone needs to be raising those points with, you right. know, with the, the issues with the legislation. 
So now, and I'm sorry, I'm talking mm-hmm. a ton, so feel <laughs> free no, to No, please. Like, that's why it. we, they hear <laughs> um, us talk all the time. Yeah. We're here to hear what you have to say. Um, but so when, you know, this next piece is coming up, the thing that I saw today or heard or whatever, Mitch McConnell say was, I mean, it, it, or I think it was Hoyer who said that, I mean, basically it sounds like they're signaling that there's going to be some kind of employer protection. And at this point, what I would be the most concerned about and wanting to be work, work, and I'm sure they are working with labor on like labor unions on is like how on earth you can minimize that damage of trying to protect major employers from, you know, lawsuits that result from them mishandling how they're protecting workers as things are reopening. Like the, the meatpacking plants, for example, if you're providing unsafe working conditions, how yeah. are you, what's the accountability? And, and that's the piece that I would be most concerned about. Yeah, that's very, it's frustrating. Not knowing very much about that, just hearing this, you know, it, it is, it's so tricky because it feels like, yes, there have been things that have been done for the average American, for people that are struggling, but it's not enough, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. there seems to be a lot of breaks, a lot of things protecting employers and uh, helping out big businesses. And it's in, meanwhile, people can't pay well, rent. It's also, <laughs> there's n- almost no way to tell like what's actually going to help these groups that right. I don't like don't I think most people would say don't really need help mm-hmm. like when you you have you know companies that none of us would consider small businesses that are right. worth tens of millions of dollars getting huge amounts back yeah. from the small business yeah like I was gonna say my sister is a small business owner and so she's she's in a partnership uh you know like a LLP or whatever and um there's three people in it and it's her and two guys so she doesn't qualify for women-owned small business stuff um, and she is, uh, they haven't gotten anything and they're, you know, they're yeah. a pretty successful small business, but they've only been open for two years. And, um, it's a, it's a tattoo and piercing studio and they haven't been able to get anything. They said that I think that when they were going with whoever it was, I don't remember, I think it's SBA. Um, they said that they were eligible for like a thousand dollars or something. That's the same thing that yeah. happened to my mom and dad who have owned a small really? business where they're the only people that work there for a furniture yeah. company in Los Angeles for 30 years. They were offered that as well. They didn't qualify wow. for anything for PPP. They weren't. Mm-hmm. They didn't get an SBA. It was like a thousand dollars, and they haven't been able to get. And 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 the process with everything is so fucking hard. It is so mm-hmm. difficult, and the system's constantly crashing, and nobody really knows what's going on. And then you hear things like the Los Angeles Lakers got millions of dollars. Um, mm-hmm. Shake Shack got millions of dollars. Ruth Chris got $20 million from the small business program, and it's just increasingly frustrating that these small businesses, such as your sisters and my parents, are just getting neglected. Totally. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through it together or not. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus like many of us you might think identity theft will never happen to you But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. 
That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Everything is so dumb, 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 dumb. Yeah, I mean, the, so I, I think the question is like, how as a, like the 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 language and the legalese kind of surrounding all of these bills, like the difference between what you might think based on what's proposed or how the bill is summarized and how it actually works uh, is often quite significant, and that's because these these aren't just being like written by, like like normal people they're being written by lobbyists and and by like teams of folks who are attempting to like it's it's not like as a as a legislator how do you try to figure out what you're actually voting for um (laughs) just in general or are you talking about a situation like this well, um, I mean, in, in general and in this, because it's that way with everything, right? Yeah, like, there's almost yeah. no, other than, like, the odd times when there's, like, a bill to, you know, honor the survivors of whatever. Like, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. No, it's it's actually, it's, it's um it was one of the most frustrating things, I think, for most of the new members coming in, probably for for anybody who's coming in, if you're, if you're a new member, no matter what time, whether you're part of this new wave or not. Um, but you, yeah, you, you often have zero opportunity like to like these bills come out at like a thousand pages. Right. And let's be real. The, yeah. the Congress people do not and never would. And you don't want them to have to spend the time to read every bit of that. Right. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, I, they shouldn't be criti- criticized for not doing it, but that does mean that that you're relying heavily on staff mm-hmm. and, um, and that cannot be, you know, you're, you're you as, as the person who ultimately takes the vote on it, aren't, you are not going to know everything. You're going to have to trust that your staff flagged you on these major issues. And so one perfect example is that there was a, um, and, and it, it, it ended up being, you know, we, we worked it out, but there was a, there was a bill where it was a, it was a good bill. Otherwise it was actually a John Lewis bill. And there was a provision in it that had been an old provision that like he obviously was not aware of. Um, but it was snuck in there by tax, uh, by the, you know, the tax, preparation companies, their lobbyists. And it basically would have made it so that the IRS could never 
um, create a free file system that was that was its own automatic, you know, version as opposed to the ones that you get through, you know, H and R Block or or whatever. And um, so we we fixed it. Like it was me and AOC and a few other people, Katie Porter, uh, that like put like a very like last minute effort into um, being able to kind of like make a provision that that would make it work. But um, that kind of thing, like it was just a random text that I got from my LD who had gotten a text from his friend because of a ProPublica article that we even knew that this was happening. And I'm a, I was a person that was voting on it. Right. So it's just, it's just weird how these kinds of things happen. And you can see like why that's a, a messed up form of governing. And I d- certainly did not figure out the, the ultimate solution to it, you know, in the short yeah. time that I was there. I, I mean, that's, it's, it's a huge problem that I, I don't know how anybody figures out the solution to. I want to talk a little bit about healthcare, uh, you know, you ran as a supporter of Medicare for All, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. But many people still think that this term endangers our chances of, of holding the House. Uh, and yet the majority of Americans do support Medicare for All in some form of it. And, and that support has strengthened yeah. since the pandemic started. Um, and, and I'm curious... Uh, about your thoughts on this. I'm curious also to know how your time in, in Congress and working with Democrats who disagreed with you uh, af- affected your position on this. So I think it's a couple things. The first is that I think the fear of, of Medicare for all, the fear of talking about Medicare for all is is overblown um, by, you know, moderate Democrats or I guess by the pundits who are saying that you can't win in these in these areas if you talk about Medicare for all. I don't I don't I don't buy that for the same reason, you know, that that you're talking about is that public opinion shows that people are not inherently opposed to the idea of Medicare for all. Now, when you have ad after ad after ad that is talking about how that position is a socialist position and tying you with, you know, if you're in a swing district, tying you with, um, the, you know, the squad or with whatever figure of the moment that, you know, Donald Trump Mm -hmm. is using as a, as a, as a scapegoat, I think then that's or not as a scapegoat, but as a villain, I think that that's why you have the, the the fear around Medicare for all, right? Because it's such an easy term for people to grab onto. And in, you know, in, in districts that are often purple districts, you have people who are employed um, in union jobs or in um, in jobs that are like, uh, they're, they have decent or good employer health benefits. And um, the thought of having to give that up for something that they compare with the VA or with, mm-hmm. um, you know, even even people who are on Medicare don't always think that their Medicare is not. I th- you know I don't know. I don't know what the resistance is fully, but I know that in my I don't district, think there's the way- one answer. I think yeah. it's different but, person to but person. In, but yeah, but in my district, the way that I would talk about it is that like, listen, you know, I never, I didn't want to get into the debate about what is Medicare for all because if you ask ten different people, you're going to get ten different answers on what Medicare for all is, unless you like isolate that to a group of people probably within this circle um, or, you know, the, the Twitter sphere that would give you a pretty consistent answer. But among the general public, there's no way that you get a, a general, a, a real meaningful policy answer on what Medicare for all is. So yeah. it's, for me, it was more about the belief that this is the kind of health care that everybody should have universal mm-hmm. access to. Right. And that um, it should not be attached to your employer. It should be, you know, it shouldn't be something that you're dependent on because of that. It should be, it should be, you know, truly something that people can count on um, and not a privilege. It shouldn't be something that you have to make an economic decision on 
um, whether you're going to be able to pay your car insurance or your health insurance. And, um, and that Obamacare just wasn't, it was, it was important and it was a huge step, especially when Mm -hmm. you consider that we're having this debate even now. Um, but it was, it wasn't enough and we have to, we have to do a lot more. Um, so, but what the benefit is, and I think that this is the part that as a progressive, um, I, I see more progress in, um, than I think you might be able to see from the outside is that I think every single person, every single person that um, was coming from one of those swing districts was all in on a, yeah. a buy-in or in a public option. And um, that was impossible 10 years ago when, um, you know, the ACA was was happening. That was not even even a remote possibility. So, um, you know, that that is big progress. And I think if ultimately something can come out of it, this is that is a public option, then that's a huge win. So. You know, yeah. I guess that's where the, the practicality part kind of meets the the part of where we want to be. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's been a frustrating year for a lot of progressives, uh, you know, feeling the momentum and the support of mm-hmm. Medicare for all. And then, and, you know, and I think that there's a lot of reasons why this happens, but you start to see political figures hedge a little bit changing the language of it. And I think that a lot of it does factor into, speaks to what you were just saying, you know, there's different messaging for different districts, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you know, there's a lot of fear that people, you know, who say that, especially during our presidential primary mm-hmm. season, say that they are an advocate of Medicare for all, but then maybe they kind of hedge their bets a mm-hmm. little bit and it starts to... um you know, and a lot of us have a hard time trusting our politicians, mm-hmm. so it's hard to trust that they mean what they're saying. And and now we have the probable nomination of Joe Biden mm-hmm. uh, as the nominee, who is not an ad- advocate of Medicare for All and has actually stated that he would veto it. And and I think a lot of people are are frustrated by that. Um, and I'm not sure what the question is here with that. Well, I'll get, I can give you just my general like op- yeah. opinion on all of that. That um, would be great. I have uh, so so. What I would say is that you know I, I don't remember the context in which Joe Biden said that he was going to veto it because what I can tell you with utter certainty is that no matter which president it is, there is an absolute zero chance that Medicare for all would make it to the president's desk in the next eight years. Well, I, four. Maybe, maybe in the next day. I think it's possible within yeah. the next day, depending on how things go. But within the next four, it won't. Um, and I think that the the biggest reason for that is that you know, and and let me. I'll come back to this this other point in a second. Yeah. But um, the the biggest reason for that is that the, even if we get control of the Senate, even if even if we get that, you do not have a we do not have big enough majorities of of um, of people, especially in the Senate, that are going to be willing to go along with even a, you know, even a very watered down version of Medicare for all. So, um, you know, I got really frustrated during the presidential debate that more of the candidates weren't being honest about this. More of the candidates mm-hmm. weren't just saying like, OK, well, you can't we're not going to get this. Like, I, I know. And, and, you know, like, you know, I've been a fan of Bernie's. I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Warren's. Like, I I get them all. But and I get the problem, like with needing to inspire people. But I also think that you are you're setting people up for massive disappointment when the reality is that you were not going to be able, not just disappointment, but distrust when you know, and I know that each of those candidates knows full well that you're not going to be able to get it through the house and the Mm -hmm. Senate. And that's just how our freaking democracy is right now. 
So I always thought it was just very disingenuous to pretend even for a moment, like, like you were, I mean, if we were all like Donald Trump and just could kind of get, um, everyone to go along, all Democrats to blindly go along with whatever we wanted. And there were enough of them then. Yeah, maybe it's possible, but that's just not, that's just not what it is. So instead here's what we should do now. And here's what I think we can do now. And here's what I can do from my position in the executive office without congressional, um, you know, legislation required, then, then that would be a much more compelling case that I would have liked to see made. Yeah, I get that. I, I frequently was, I was frustrated similarly uh, in that, like, there's all this confusion cir- circulating about it. And then people should be specific, say, mm-hmm. like, here are the steps. Here's what we need. Here's the realistic approach to it. Um, you know, I, I will speak for some people that listen to us and colleagues as well that, the other side of the coin is Medicare for all was not even something that registered in our minds as a possibility until we started talking about it as a thing that we can achieve. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and and like you were saying, stuff that was not possible 10 years ago is more possible now. Yeah. And and so that's a huge win in my book. And I and totally it's, agree. Yeah. It's a tricky and, balance. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that is. Right. Like I don't I'm not a, I'm not somebody who says like we need to go for moderation or incrementalism. Right. I didn't run like that. That's not my no. you know, that's not my approach at all. I just think that, um, you know, and maybe maybe my my position on that was kind of heightened once I got to Congress, too, because mm-hmm. I did see how impossible something like something like, you know, how impossible the most basic things are, let alone when we have the majority in the House, let alone when, you know, you're talking about something as massive and sweeping as you know, another round of healthcare reform that involves um, that involves something so sweeping to our entire system as Medicare for all. Yeah. So um, I just think that like the real conversation that needs to be had is it. And by the way, the elections that need to happen are on on the congressional level anyway. Like if you want to move, if you actually want to move the political will to get to Medicare for all or any really progressive policy, then then those primary elections in the very blue districts are the ones that are going to move it. It's mm-hmm. it's having people who um, who who are able to take those risky, you know, supposedly risky votes. The only people who can do it are the ones from the very blue areas. And if you are electing a moderate Democrat in those areas, then you're just not going to get it. And the only way yeah. that those change over is if people show up and get involved. And um, there's a very strong political powerhouse that is that supports it you know an incumbent staying and that's not even that's just voter you know complacency as much as it is money or anything else so the establishment um, yeah it's a yeah. combination um so you've mentioned a couple times about things being difficult <laughs> in congress and getting stuff done and the reality being different from from the expectations in a, in, a, in many ways or from what we see as as yeah. outsiders and I'm curious to know more about your ex- experiences there. Um, you know, I, I guess working with Republicans who, well, I'll say this. I'm not going to say the name of uh, a colleague, but I did once have an interaction with one of your Democratic colleagues. And they mentioned that behind the the curtains, many Republican representatives behaved very differently than what mm-hmm. we see publicly, you know, yep. people would pass in the hallway and say, thank you. Oh, yeah. And that, and that frustrated yeah. me <laughs> in many ways. Um, oh, my God. Completely differently. Like, completely differently. 
Um, now, that's not to say that their policy positions changed mm-hmm. behind closed doors. I wouldn't say that that happened, but you're certainly um, there's a there's a level of civility and and you know, f- and certainly not across the board, but within your committees, I think that you you often get to know people across the other you know across the aisle. Like, but it it, it totally depends on the person, right? Like there are, there are probably well over 150 Republicans that I never, I could never identify who they were, right? Yeah. Like they were, they were all old white men. I can tell you that much. And probably there were at least 50, 50 bills or something like that. But, um, you know, they, they were, uh, you know, I, I didn't get to know all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, and frankly, like you, the more you're there, the less inclined you are to even want to try because this, the stunts they pull are just so ridiculous. Like I had, it was actually almost a year ago. Um, I was on armed services, and so we were negotiating. Th- and I, I know you guys probably have a lot to say about this, but um, <laughs> the defense authorization. And we just had, like, we had spent so much effort on the Democratic side to get, like, some basic wins, right? Like, some some mild wins to, uh, that, you know, Democrats have been wanting for years. Like, basic changes to funding Guantanamo and, like, things that should not even have been controversial, not inc- increasing the nuclear supply. Like, like these are, these are things that are so obvious and basic. And, um, and they did it in a way that, you know, the leadership on the committee did it in a way that should have made it possible for there to be at least some bipartisan support. Um, and it was just like, it, it was the only person oddly who voted with Democrats on it was Elise Stefanik. And that was before she took her hard turn towards Republicans. And, but I remember that night, cause you stay up for like 24 hours doing this. Like you literally are in committee all night. Yeah. And I, I, the next day you have to come in to vote at the normal time. So it was like 9am and I, I'd gotten like literally an hour of sleep, I think. And, um, I was laying on the couch in the, um, in the back of the, you know, cloakroom where basically members hang out waiting to vote and stuff like that. And, um, I remember sitting and talking to Tony Cardenas and I'm just like this, this is it. You, you just can't work with Republicans. We just have to vote them all out. Like that's the only, Yeah. I, like I, I run as somebody who was like, we can, you know, we should work together and da, 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 da. And I was like, we're not going to be able to work with them. Like they're just, we, we are going to have to outnumber them in such a way that, you know, yeah. It, it yeah. Just, I mean, that's, <laughs> that that's where I've been for a while just as like, and, and this is, like there's so much anger on the left that I I th- feel is really understandable with how like there will be all of this this talk about how unacceptable the things the administration is mm-hmm. doing and then stuff like you know w- we'll pass another defense authorization bill um that includes like the funding for our government to continue you know things like it's massively escalated uh uh drone strike campaigns and that like I, I feel like there's this this frustration. I, I definitely feel this frustration that um, the Republicans are always willing to play hardball um, mm-hmm. and and really exercise power, um, mm-hmm. which is why they get what they want most of the time. Yeah. And on the Democratic side, there is this love of compromise and bipartisanship that I, I feel like goes it doesn't <laughs> work in the modern era. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's. That's part of it. I do think that Republicans are are willing to play hardball in a way that the Democrats aren't. Um, and but I also think that it's easier for them because they 
They are just the party of no, Mm -hmm. right? Like they don't want to give anyone anything. They don't want to, you know what I mean? Like they they don't want to raise taxes. They don't want to make any reforms to anything unless it's reducing regulation. Like it's just no. It's very easy to vote no. And you don't, I think what we're trying to accomplish as Democrats is Speaker Pelosi always refers to us as the big tent party. Like she just, it's something she says almost every single week. And it's true. It's like, if you're a Republican, you're in a very, you are representing a very narrow set of views. But if you're a Democrat, you are, you are representing a huge range. And, um, and so it's hard to get like a whole segment of people that can solidify around, like, this is the one thing that we're protesting and we're going to vote as a block around, um, like the tea partiers, like they just Mark Meadows and, and, um, you know, they like stayed solidly as a block because they were just like, nope, we're going to, we, we don't want any of this stuff unless we get everything that we want. And it didn't matter because passing anything didn't really matter to them. So I just think it's a, it's a, it's a difficult comparison um, because we actually care about getting things done. And, um, and I think also we're much more compassionate to the consequences of playing hardball and the consequences on real people, right? Like the government shutdown, it, you know, if that's what you're holding over the heads of, um, you know, that's your tool, right? Like that's, that's the only tool when you're saying we're going to hold up the defense authorization is that you're, you're saying you're going to shut down the military, Mm -hmm. um, is that's a, that's a very different proposition when you're, when you're there and you, um, you realize exactly how many people that's going to hurt and how, and, um, and the implications of it that, you know, you wouldn't be as tuned into otherwise. Mm-hmm. I'm pivot a little bit. 2017 was proclaimed the year of the women because a historic number of women ran and won uh, House elections. Uh, and now in 2020, we're seeing even more women running, which is very exciting. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners have also mold that decision whether to run for office someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we would love to hear about your experiences campaigning as a first time candidate, how you made that decision to run. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, so I was never planning on becoming a politician. And I think that that's why, you know, it's not this, like the tragedy yeah. of the last year for me hasn't been the fact that I'm no longer in power or in, right. in politics. Cause that was never my intention to begin with. What were you um, doing before you, you ran for So office? I was running uh, the largest homeless services organization That's in right. California. That's right. PATH. And, um, and so, you know, th- their job has just expanded massively over the yeah. last, even since I've left in you know, the last three, three, got it. I can't even believe it's only three years ago. But I think that, you know, my, my reason for running came from, you know, basically Trump winning and me saying, like, I know how, I, working on homelessness for my, almost my entire career was you see all of the different systems, how broken they are and how much needs to be fixed and um, and how disastrous the consequences can be, you know, when particularly we had a Republican House and Senate and then Trump elected when I was when we were seeing that the funding was going to get slashed for all the mm-hmm. programs that mattered the most when they wanted to kick, you know, people off of benefits and undermine every single aspect of, you know, people who are marginalized the most and the services that we're able to provide for them. That was what that was what kicked it off for me. That was why I was like, okay, I'm going to get involved. Um, at least somehow in flipping the house, I have to, then I found out that my district was one of the key districts, um, you know, where Hillary had won and, and we needed to flip it to flip the house. And, um, one thing led to another. And I, I basically, there was a, a, a guy running a, a white guy running who was the one who I, that had run and lost even when Hillary won. 
And I just, knowing my district, I just knew he couldn't win. And, um, and I said, you know, I, I was complaining to some other um, people who had been mobilized, right, or activated. And this is, this is around February of 2017. And I was like, we need to find somebody who can, you know, run and actually win. And then one of my, like, friends and mentors said to me, she's like, Katie, like, you just listed off, like, a slew <laughs> of characteristics. And, like, why don't, you know, why don't you run? And, I mean, my initial reaction was, like, dude, I have a life. I've got baggage. I've got, like, you know, I don't yeah. want to do this. And, you know, like, this wasn't my plan. And, um, but then I was like, fucking Donald Trump is president. You know what? I'm going to do it. Right. Yeah. And, um, and we built this like crazy grassroots campaign and, and I don't regret it for a second. Um, I regret the outcome yeah. and I regret yeah. the, the stuff that, you know, I did that contributed to that, but I, I don't regret it for a second. And I, I think the I'm, I went from becoming from this rising star, the success story, whatever you want to call it to like a cautionary tale. And, um, but I think what's important is that I'm still saying that even knowing the outcome, even if it had been from the very beginning, someone, you know, whispered into my ear that this is, this is how it's all going to end. Um, I still would have done it. And, um, and I think people, women need to across the board. That's That's my book. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, she has a book she's working on coming out later this summer. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually want to circle back to path in a, a minute, but I, you said something that I want to touch on. You know, you, you say like, you know, I have a past. And I think that, that is a fear for a lot of people. Like, mm-hmm. well, I've got stuff I'm not proud of. I'm not a perfect person. And mm-hmm. I don't know that means that I'm disqualified from doing this. And, and what happened to you is, case in point, a thing mm-hmm. that people – would be afraid of happening to yeah. them. Like yeah. who among us doesn't have something that, yeah. that, you know, can be skewed in some sort of a way. Right. And, right. and so that's why I, I think that what you're saying right now is, is so important and valuable to me anyway, uh, of, that you would have done it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I, and I, you know, I have young women who are thinking about, it. I just last week gave a kind of keynote, <laughs> a zoom keynote, um, for a group of, of <laughs> the women who I, yeah, like I'd given the in-person keynote last year and they they asked me to do it again this year. I was like, uh, you guys know what happened between like then and now, right? And <laughs> um and they they said, "Yeah, they wanted me to anyway." And I was like, "Okay, but um but I, what I say is that like I wish I had something better to say about the solution, but the solution yeah. in the immediate is that like you have to be willing to know that that's the worst that can happen and still be willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And that takes that takes a hell of a lot of courage. And, um, and what, what it also means is that we as voters, as human beings, I think need to, to start being much more compassionate to that and yeah. knowing that people and, and, and having a real dialogue about, and God knows I want to know the answer when people do make mistakes. What, yeah. what is, what does redemption look like? How do you come back from that? Um, how does, and, and maybe it means that, all right, you, you screwed up enough that you don't belong in a position of, of, of government or elected office anymore. And, then, and, and, and if so, that's, then that, that's what it is. But um, I think that that question is one that we're going to have to grapple with, not just for politicians, but for 
um, you know, for people across the board. And I, I've listened to a, a, your podcast a lot with the the Tara Reid story and, yeah. you know, it, with Me Too issues in general. And yeah. I, I just think it's something that we, um, we're going to have to have some serious question, conversations yeah. about. You know, there's a, and there's, there's a, a level of this that's just due to how much information is out there. And it's the same kind of thing you see every time, like uh, every time a black man is killed by the police mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. by like what happened with uh, Ahmed Arbery, where... Yeah. A lot of people have things in their life that don't look great, and they're still fine people. Mm-hmm. But if you dig through to, for like the worst moments or the lowest moments or the the, the biggest mistakes in someone's life, mm-hmm. and all anyone is getting is either like like it, 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 you you there's no context, I guess. Like no. you, you just get a selection of like the worst things in someone's life if that's what you want to present, or the best things in someone's life if that's what you want to present. And yeah, um. I, I do think that there's kind of a, a, a real problem. I don't know. It's complicated. There's definitely a problem Democrats have as being the only one of the two parties that's actually uh, uh, beholden to any of that, mm-hmm. to like answering yeah, for moral failings of their pasts. Yep. Um, yep. Because it's not a thing that Republicans have to answer Oh, they don't give a shit. Anymore. No. Yeah. No. Um, like, like openly yeah. do not give a f- <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like yeah. proudly. They're yeah. proud. They're proud. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those things where I'm not. I don't want to be the one to. I don't want to be suggesting like, well, then we shouldn't have standards, moral standards either, because that's not the right way to do it. But also, being the only one fighting with a hand behind your back isn't like. Well, something else needs to be figured out. Totally, and 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 I mean, mine mine is the example, right? I resigned because of the moral standards that we have, because and I believe in them, right? I'm like, okay, I I fucked up, and like this is. This is what it means. I'm going to step aside and somebody else, you know, I'm like, I'm going to, that that's the right thing to do. If this is the standard that we're holding ourselves to, that's the right thing to do. And, um, and then this is what happened. So, yeah. you know, I, <laughs> what does that mean? I, and I heard, and I heard you guys talking about like, um, uh, what if, what if Biden would step aside? Right. And, um, and I, I kind of chuckled to myself. I'm like, well, I did. <laughs> I don't know how that right. worked out yeah. for us. But, um, you right. know, I, I don't know. So, um, Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating conversation that we clearly don't have the answer to, but we'll continue to have. And, and you're right. There's going to be, there has to be some way for us to, to, to grapple with this. Um, I... I mentioned wanting to circle back to PATH uh, just briefly because I'm, I'm curious if, if you've continued to do any work uh, with with homeless advocacy or what they're doing if if there's stuff has changed because of coronavirus and what kind of s- things they're doing to to counteract the effect on. Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 homeless services community, I'm, I'm still in touch with a lot of them and um, especially with PATH and, uh, and a couple of the other agencies. Um, and I got in touch with them early on during the, you know, as, as things were really starting to kind of heighten during the pandemic. And um, uh, they're really on the front lines because if this if this pandemic had swept through the homelessness, uh, through the homeless population, like everything could have just gotten yeah. massively escalated in California. And the fact that that the governor took the precautions that he did and put the measures in place and, and you know, that the city of LA did specifically within the homeless, you know, services community, like that was hugely important. And um, the providers have had to pick up a lot of, you know, uh, of extra costs, including, you know, 
I mean, PPE and, and, um, and paying people like literally having to pay people tons of extra money to, to continue working through it because, you know, that's the right thing to do. And it's, it's about as, as dangerous of a frontline position as working in a hospital. Um, no, I shouldn't say that, but it's, it's very high risk. Right. And, um, and so it's just, it's, it's a ton of extra, in, you know, incurred costs, um, for the organizations that are, uh, front loaded and these are nonprofits and, and philanthropy has diminished massively, right? Because people who are normally the biggest philanthropists, including corporations are cutting all of that off. Um, now maybe we're seeing this uptick in the, you know, the Dow and perhaps that'll start to, to trend upwards again. But, um, what, yeah, I think the biggest thing is that there's a lot of great stuff that's being done. And if it hadn't have, if it hadn't been done, the, you know, California has done among the best of all of the States in terms of how, um, mitigated the, Mm -hmm. the disease has been. And, um, I really think that, that a lot of that started at, you know, at the efforts, the homelessness levels, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm comparatively proud of the West coast in general. We just in Portland became, we were the very first and I think still are the only, um, U S city to vote about whether or not to institute a wealth tax in order to pay for more uh, homeless shelters and services. Um, And it was a bill, the bill was proposed prior to COVID-19 hitting, but Mm -hmm. we, we voted on it just like a week ago. Um, and it passed. It passed pretty overwhelmingly. Um, it was like a 1% wealth tax on businesses over, I think, a certain size and people making more than $125,000 a year to, to pay for more homeless services. And it it, that's awesome. it passed. And I hope that that's like a sign of where things are going in the future. Like that, that one of the things that's so frustrating about this exact moment is that we can look at things like um, like your seat being won back by a Republican, um, mm-hmm. which Republicans are obviously saying is like evidence that now we're going to have us a red wave. Um, or you can look at, you know, there, there's just as many things that you can look at that suggest that, like, no, we're in for, like, a pretty a pretty significant Democratic sweep, at least in, mm-hmm. um, you know, the House and Senate mm-hmm. in, in this next election. Nobody really knows what's going no. to happen. So we're stuck in this period of, like, uh, helplessness. Yeah. Like, it feels helpless. Yeah. Um, the only thing I can think to suggest to people in this period is to try to do, you know, get in and and change things like that's really yeah. the long term solution. Like what, what yeah. regardless of what you think of of the system or think of the Democratic Party, um, the only way to actually make things better is to get into positions where you're able to exercise mm-hmm. power and then exercise power effectively because that's the system we live in. And if yeah. you don't accept that, then you're yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. And 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 most of the time, that's going to happen locally for you, right? Yeah. Like the federal yeah. the federal government gets all of the attention. Um, but most often the, the, the biggest impact you see is from local governments and, um, and state governments. So, you know, I think, I think that, that hopefully the civics lesson that starts to happen from this is that, you know, if you want systemic change, um, it has to build upwards. It's not going to start from the top down, right? Like, you know, and, and that's from local, you know, uh, district by district, neighborhood councils to city councils to, um, you know, county supervisors, state elections, water boards even, and then, um, and then congressional districts and the congressional districts are what's going to rebuild Congress to look like what we want it to look like so that we can do things like pass Medicare for all, um, you know, getting people like AOC and Ayanna Presley elected, um, and people who, who are in that more progressive wave is that's what, that's, what's got to happen. whether it's through, you know, people retiring and, and attrition just generally or flipping seats, it doesn't really matter. Like that's, 
that's how it has to happen. It's not going to happen from electing any president, even if it was the most progressive president that we could have gotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the same, like, there's all this focus on national politics, but also, mm-hmm. like, if you elect if you elect a sheriff, uh, if you elect a mayor who can, you know, change who the chief of police is in a lot of American yeah. cities, um, cause just because everybody's, especially today, given the news that's broken yeah. this week, everybody's really focused on police violence again, which yeah. we always should be. If yeah. you want to change those things, you can change them very, like, there is, like, like, when you're at the national level in Congress, there's so much... It's so complicated. It's so hard to make real totally. changes. But at that level, if you get in a new sheriff, if you get in a new mayor, there's yeah. huge immediate ways you can change 100%. life for everyone who lives around you. Um, yep. And, and a, you, yeah. You're not going to get you're not going to get a federal policy that makes uh, you can get some executive orders on police brutality that it could actually make a big difference pretty quickly, I think. Um, but legislation on it, oh, man, that'll be that'll be that'll be tough. But yeah, at the local yeah. level, that could happen overnight. Virtually. So, you know, um, like literally with the change that happens with an election or, you know, action of a city council. Um, uh, And I think that that's that is something that people really need to to be focused on. Yeah. Also, in the in this lull, these next few months, um, you know, in which we're trying to figure out what what life during a pandemic looks like, because we we might have a a period now. But as we're coming into November, when people are going to be voting again, that could be very well the next you know major surge. Um, we as Democrats in particular have to figure out what we're going to do as far as field goes. I do not think we're going to be able to win if we don't have an adapted field strategy in pretty much anywhere. And I, and I know people, lots of smart people are working on that, but, um, there's going to have to be something that is, that is like, well, um, uh, implemented kind of across the board for yeah. us to, to have, you know, not necessarily even persuasive conversations, but just getting people you know, to know mm-hmm. what's going on and to be able to vote um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and even know how to vote, right? Like yeah. it, it may not even be a matter of, of telling them, gee, there's this really important election, but it's, it's telling them like, here's what has to happen for you to be able to vote because it's different and it's more difficult now. Right. And we don't have much time between now exactly. and then. It's like, it's over, it's, it's just months away. So that's uh, my like nerves around it is, um, yeah. you know, we can't just sit here behind our computer screens and expect to be able to solve all that. Um, and I don't know, you know, I think um, people really need to be mobilizing and, and getting ready to go. Um, and and I just, I think each campaign is going to have to figure that out differently. But yeah, yeah, it's going to, much like everything else about this, mm-hmm. it's going to be very specific to, to the region where, where they're campaigning. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through together or not. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. If you're 21 years old and use nicotine or tobacco, I'm here to tell you about Black Buffalo and how it's redefining tradition for millions of adult consumers. So if you're over 21, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical 
Black Buffalo products are intended for adults aged 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. about what's next for you um, and and the different projects that you are working on. Um, sure. I, I know you had mentioned Her Time, if you mm-hmm. wanted to explain a little bit about that. Sure. So um, Her Time is the pack that I started. Um, when I resigned, I had money that was in my re-election campaign mm-hmm. that you are, uh, that basically you have to do something with. And um, I was able to convert it into a pack and then start raising um, money into that pack to support specifically women and young women. Um, more of the, the the progressive and longer shot candidates, the ones that, you know, my, I think my endorsement in her time would come in um, before, often before Emily's list or before some of the, the more kind of uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the bigger endorsers, the more established uh, uh, organizations um, to, to just give that extra boost, um, to try and help. I mean, it is, it is really, really hard. Uh, if you look at the number of, of women candidates who ran versus the number of women candidates who won and especially won in primaries, um, it's, you know, the numbers aren't great. They, they yeah. still, ha- we, we still have a long way to go. And, um, in my, in my book, I like, I'm one of those people. I say that we should vote for a woman just because she's a woman. And I know that that's a that's a controversial perspective, even among even among liberals. But I think we really should be voting for a woman because because they're women. Now that that doesn't that doesn't mean like you have a totally unqualified like crazy person as you know versus a, a competent. <laughs> but but it does mean that like if you have two equally competent people, right? I think you should pick the woman because we have to balance out power and and yeah. in a in a major way. Um, so I actually just talked myself off of what I was even supposed to be answering. <laughs> no, I don't think so. You're, you're talking. I mean, what, I'm what, just curious about yeah. her, her time. Yeah. Go ahead, oh, okay, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I mean, what I'm what I'm curious about is is is, I, and I, I the I know the actual answer to this is longer than you can give here. But for people who are thinking about getting involved in politics and starting a campaign at some point in the next couple of years, you've done that. You've gone from no no political background to creating a really successful fundraising. Uh, camp machine and also a really successful campaign that got you elected. How do you how do you do that? Because I think there's a lot of people who are just like sitting at home and thinking like, okay, well, I think maybe I could I could get involved and in, or I could try to run for something, but it's it's it feels like kind of an insurmountable obstacle. Um, yeah, and it isn't. But yeah, like what is like what is the advice you can give? You know, without uh, teaching like a six-hour class on how to sure you know, what forms you have to file and the, stuff. Yeah, yeah. The first the first pieces of advice, and I and I, I'm assuming that anybody who's listening to your podcast is is either a Democrat or so progressive they don't even consider themselves Democrats. Yeah, that's, that yeah, where I would that's land. fair. Yeah, <laughs> that I think that they that you know the one place that I would say that you could probably have the biggest impact and and ability to um, to start your uh, 
I don't know, start even figuring out if you want to run for something, starting to learn how to campaign, starting to look, learn like what that political world or, um, you know, the, even the, the just like what you would have to do um, is to get involved with your local Democratic Party. And that sounds like, have any of you guys been involved with local Democratic parties? No. Like Dem clubs? Okay. Well, that like, I feel like everyone needs to have that assignment. Um, okay. Not just, I'm not just saying homework. you guys, but I'm just saying like everybody who wants, like if you're complaining yeah. about the Democratic Party, if you have ever once said, I wish the Democratic Party did X, you're, you are the Democratic Party. We are the Democratic Party. There's no, there's, we don't have a, a, a person in charge. There's not, there, there is nothing except for us. And so every single person is just as able to go and get involved. Like it's operated by these clubs, these Democratic clubs, which are like a very odd institution. Um, and I, like the only way that the Democratic Party changes is if, you know, it changes through these clubs and um, they're very progressive, but they're they're not always well managed or well run or very effective. And um, I, I think that, you know, I don't know who's going to do this book, but um, how how you can actually transform that existing apparatus yeah. into one where, you know, this new this new activist base can can plug into and what that means for the National Democratic Party. Yeah. So um, that's where I would say start. And then and then that is where you kind of start finding like, OK, your Democratic your Democratic club will know, um, you know, what the local positions are that are going to be coming up and who's in play and like what the the very, you know, specific. There are always local politics. And um, mm-hmm. and I think that that's like the number one place to start. But but it's it is not uh, necessarily a um, an appealing place to start. Right. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I feel such frustration over I, – I'm stuck in two ways because I, I don't identify as a Democrat. Um, I okay. have I voted for them in the past because it's as close as I can get usually. Yep. Um, but I, I'm, I'm very frustrated, and I have a lot of ethical issues actually with a number of, of, of Democratic Party um, points mm-hmm. or ta- like a number of like kind of mainline Democratic Party um, uh, beliefs. But – I also had the experience of growing up um, in the South as the child of a very conservative family and watching mm-hmm. all this stuff that when I was 12, 13, my parents would be like, oh, these people are just on the fringe. They're nuts. Uh, they're mm-hmm. never going to be a major factor in the Republican Party. Like, this doesn't actually represent us. And I yep. watched those people very methodically take over the Republican Party in an extremely yep. effective way. And now they're getting everything they want. Yep. So it, yeah. it is like... Yeah, I, 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 there's a, the part of me that is just like angry about politics all the time wants to say to hell with the Democratic Party and point out all these list of failures. But I do think like I, I watched it happen on the right. And I, I the, the only reason the only thing that would stop it from happening on the left is a lack of willingness to put in the decades of of frustration and compromise that it would take and obviously there's an argument to be made that we don't have that time anymore i don't know that's not i don't think you can give an answer to that just how and i and i I do think though that like it it is worth comparing um and and i think bernie sanders and the enthusiasm that his campaign started in 2016 has a tremendous amount to do with this is that the the party itself and the party platform like if you compare 20 the 2016 or the 20 you know the successively the 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 2012 to the 2016 to the 2020 party platforms like they are massively more progressive yeah. and um and even what let's just take Joe Biden for example has had to kind of commit to or promise to um throughout the course of this campaign has pushed it far further to the left than than I think most people would have ever expected 
him to go or for the, you know, the, the, the democratic establishment moderate to go. And, um, and I think that, you know, it is because people, Bernie activists got involved in the democratic party. Um, and hopefully I think a lot of them are staying involved and, um, I don't know, you know, but yeah, it it really does have to start at that level and it, it is changing. Um, it doesn't mean that it's, um, but I actually would say that the the successes that have been had there in the last few years on the Democratic Party platform, especially, um, are are massive and and should there should be they should they we really should credit that to the Sanders, um, you know, yeah, mobilization and um, and that's yeah. a lesson that can be learned. And if we want to continue that progress, then that's that's what it means. But it also means like okay, you can take over the Democratic Party. Um, apparatus with the local clubs and, and the DNC and everything like that. But um, it only it only matters if you can also make it effective. So that's mm-hmm. what we need an infusion of as well is not just people who are angry about things, um, but people who who are committed to figuring out how to actually get people yeah. elected. I actually find that I, I, that's both frustrating and inspiring to me. Um, you know, is the same way we just talked about, you know, getting involved in local levels like you have to start that way and, you know, address the, the things that are in your community. Um, I That is demystifying to me in, in a way in terms of the Democratic Party saying like, yeah, mm-hmm. you, you can, even if it is unpalatable for some of us, and that is something for us to consider. But if you, if we can, yeah, infuse some of our beliefs into it at the local level and start mm-hmm. to climb our way up that way, again, it, it feels daunting because there's so much work to be done but it also that feels like something i can go do yeah yeah and And that and if you bring enough friends like who are also can would consider themselves ones who want to change the party or who want to change you know things in general then like suddenly the democratic clubs don't they they actually become something better than they are now and um but it takes it takes numbers of people being willing to do it. And uh, mo- what I have learned over the course of campaigning is that getting people to to actually do something um, as opposed to just talk about doing something mm-hmm. is like that's the, that's the catalyst that you need to figure out. And, um, you know, I, I think that we were we were really fortunate with the time with it with it being 2018 and, and how, f- you know, the the. The fact that people were so frustrated over the 2016 results um, mobilized people and the proximity of the district and, and the kind of candidate I was like all of those things added up to make it so that people were actually showing up. Like we had 5000 different volunteers show up just for get out the vote. Um, and that was, you know, a lot of people in swing districts had the same thing because of how energized people were. But but what Republicans have been able to do that we have not is sustain their track record with voting, sustain their, um, you know, their organizing. I mean, Republicans, even though my district is, my former district is um, D plus five at this point in a, in a, uh, in a general election year, even maybe higher at this point because of new registrations, it's all of the local cities except for one are entirely run by Republicans entirely. Wow. Um, And that's because they're good at local elections. They do it. They put in, they put in the, you know, the time and, and I, I don't even know what it is, but it's, it's just something that we have not been as good at. And it might be because of, of, you know, what comprises our electorate, including people who have like, you know, time constraints and can't afford childcare and yeah. have to work multiple jobs and, um, you know, 
things like that. And also we're young and, and when you're older, you can, yeah. you can be very much more involved in local politics, but it's something we're going to have to figure out is, is how to, to change over this kind of control too. Yeah. Generationally. I mean, I, yeah, too. Uh, totally. I think it does have to do with what you were saying before, the the Democrats are a big tent party and mm-hmm. we have a, a lot of different people here who are there for different reasons. And Republican messaging is a, a bit more straightforward, perhaps. Yes. Um, yes. Well, that's what I, I have. Those are all the questions I have. Um, do you guys have anything else you, you want to chime in? No, no, no. Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, or anything else that you you would like to to touch on, Katie? Today, um, I think that's I think that's it. I didn't really have an agenda necessarily. Yeah, I know. Um, so no, but well, I you know I guess those are the the biggest things are just like the, I hope that my the special election for the twenty fifth was um, can be used as. I hope that there's a case study that comes yeah. from it soon um, and that it can be used as a, as a lesson for November, not even, yeah. I mean, just because we have to figure out this new reality um, yeah. and what, what elections are going to look like uh, in November. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we would love to have you back uh, sure. later Thanks. on when, when your, your book comes out and we can talk more about that stuff and, and Great. more about, how the election is shaping up at that point. Um, yeah. But we're, how many of we're our listeners incredibly are grateful now running for your for time today. Of this specifically. Yeah, we'll, we'll follow <laughs> yeah, up. Let, we'll, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or how many are like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, like, and hard yeah. pass. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. If there's anything about your story uh, that people should take away, it's that running for office is a simple mm-hmm, decision mm-hmm. with no consequences. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's easy and not frustrating once you're there. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that was perhaps not the most persuasive um, little podcast on why you should run for office. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, it, you running should. for office sucks. But please do it. Yeah, but do, do it. it. Be a be a be a you know a, a good American citizen and run for office. I guess. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Katie. Have a great day. Thank you. Have a good one. Boy, howdy. The that end. sure made me want to run for office. The thing that has no consequences to your personal life. There's yeah. not a double standard at all. I'm running now because of that. There's at least four or five standards. Yeah, there's a quadruple uh, standard. Yeah. I really appreciated that conversation. And despite all of those uh, cautionary tales that we just heard, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's energizing for me personally. Yeah, let's go to those clubs. Yeah, let's, let's go. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to do ever. <laughs> but I'm grateful to <laughs> Katie for her time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't have to decide right away what to do know. with your time, but uh, you've absorbed you've but absorbed information and uh, let it percolate. You know. Well, if you're you can you can run for political office, you can burn down the mayor's house. There's no way to know which of those will wind up having worse consequences. That's for actually what I got out of the run. interview too. That uh, she supports burning <laughs> down the mayor's house. I hope mm-hmm. she stopped listening <laughs> to the episode at this point. All right, that you have to f- listen between. Mm, the you have lines. to listen to the words she doesn't say. It's like jazz, burning down the mayor. Yeah, burning down the like, mayor's house is like, like jazz. jazz. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what you should take out of mm-hmm. this episode. Thank you. You know, 
I was really proud of us for keeping this all on the rails today. <laughs> and I'm glad to see that right at the end, we still managed to go off of them. That's so, what the year is for. That's I'm proud this year is not for rails, Katie. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go out there and be the Miles Davis of burning down mm-hmm. the mayor's house. I mean, that's our call to action today. <laughs> uh, you guys can follow Katie Hill on Twitter at Katie Hill. Yep. The number four CA. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Worst Year Pod. You can follow Katie Stoll at, at Katie Stoll. You can follow Cody at Dr. Mr. Cody. You can follow Robert only on Twitter at I write okay, just okay, not anything else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you and can you all- can find your mayor's house in the center of town. Whatever a building is in the center of town, that's the mayor's house. Mm-hmm. Legally, it has. No matter to be. what it says uh, on the mailbox, or you know, if someone comes out and like, wait, wait, I'm not the mayor. No matter what, this is a Walgreens. Yeah, like no, that is the mayor's house. What is happening? Lovely. Worst Year Ever is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.